word of prayer. Open your Bibles up to Genesis t- chapter 22, and we'll have a quick word of prayer. I have a short lesson, which is good because it's already 10:30. So if we're going to get out of here and go eat, we got to get out soon. All right, Genesis chapter 22. We're going to finish up the chapter, looking at verses 15 to 24. But let's first of all pray. Father, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts that you truly did provide yourself the lamb. Thank you, Lord, for the Lamb of God, which came to take away the sins of the world. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ, who was born to die. Thank you, Lord, for saving us from the penalty of sin, for giving us the Holy Spirit, who enables us now in this present life to be saved from the power of sin. And thank you one day in glory that we will even be saved from the presence of sin. Now I do pray that you would go before me, Lord, help the Holy Spirit to be our teacher and to just teach each of us what he has for us individually. For we pray in the blessed name of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, once Abraham had completed his work of unbinding Isaac as he was there on the altar and then offering in his stead the ram which had been provided by God, then the angel of the Lord who was, who? The Lord Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, he spoke to Abraham a second time. And that's what we see as we begin our study for today, verse 15. He spoke to Abraham a second time. The first time, he actually stopped him from killing his son. Now, this is really the the last recorded time when heaven speaks to Abraham, when the Lord spoke personally to Abraham. And what he did, what the Lord did here, was essentially restate and then reassert his previous covenant promises which he had made earlier in Abraham's life. Abraham had proven himself unflinchingly obedient to God and blessings always follow what? Obedience. Blessings always follow obedience. Abraham had been tested to the extreme. I mean, you have to admit, that's the extreme, to be asked to sacrifice your own son, your only son. He had been tested and he came forth as gold. So what he heard by way of his final message from heaven was, in effect, we could say it was a well done, thou good and faithful servant, and a confirmation of all the covenant blessings rolled into one. Now, you don't see my outline here, but you have it in your hands, right? Does everybody have? Oh, 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 we we need a few more. Raise your hand if you didn't get the, the notes. There's no homework on the flip side. That is my Christmas present to all of you. (laughs) It was also a Christmas present to myself because I didn't have to make up the questions and I didn't have to answer the questions. By the way, the reason I didn't do that is because I had to go to Ohio. This is my daughter, Connie. Connie, will you stand up and turn around? (laughs) This is the one you've been praying through statistics. We don't know yet if she made it. We'll get the report card (laughs) sometime over Christmas. It may be a good Christmas present. It may be a bad Christmas present. But Connie goes to school up in Ohio, so I had to go this week to Ohio and back to bring her back. All right, anybody else? Everybody's got the notes. So anyway, our outline, you can see the title of our lesson is Stars and Sand. And that sounds strange, but you'll understand why when we get into our scripture. 
And we're going to, um, first of all, look at the reassurance of blessings that will be in verses 15 to 18. And then the second part of our outline, we'll look at Abraham's return to Beersheba. He actually leaves Gerar, the land of the Philistines, and he goes over to live in Beersheba, remember where he had dug a well. Okay, and then that's in verse 19. The third part of our outline is we'll look at some of his relatives through his brother. He has one surviving brother named Nahor, and that will be in verses 20 to 24. So let's begin by looking at his reassurance of blessings, and for this, look with me at verses 15 to 18 of Genesis chapter 22. It says, And the angel of the Lord, we already mentioned that that is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time, meaning the second time in this event. And said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed, here it comes, as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies." And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. One of the greatest principles that's taught from cover to cover in the scripture is one we've already mentioned this morning, and that is that blessings do indeed follow obedience. This truth was certainly made evident following Abraham's obedience in offering up Isaac, his son, even though he did not have to carry through with that very difficult assignment. Abraham's initial blessing, we're going to look for a few minutes at the blessings which he received following his obedience. His initial blessings, of course, came in hearing the Lord himself suddenly speak to him from heaven, you know, just as he had that knife in the air. Hearing the Lord speak to him to stop him from slaying Isaac, you know that had to be a blessing. And then, of course, uh, figuratively speaking, receiving his son back from the dead, because in his mind his son had been dead for three days. Now another blessing for Abraham came in the Lord's provision of that ram substitute for his son Isaac. You know, in the New Testament, over in the book of Matthew, chapter 10, verse 37, we remember the Lord Jesus speaking to his followers, and he said to them something that kind of shocked them. He said, he that loveth son or daughter more than me is what? Not worthy of me. Now, in Genesis chapter 22, we see the same Lord Jesus commending Abraham for not withholding his son, his only son, from him. So, uh, in doing so, Abraham, you see, had truly demonstrated that he loved God above anything or anyone. Because we know how precious Isaac was to him. He waited a hundred years to have him, and he was the son of promise. So he had done what the Lord said. You know, he loved God above everything and everyone. There were no idols in his life, not even his children. So further blessings from his obedience, which came to Abraham, uh, were repeated praises which he heard from the Lord himself. In verse 12, when the Lord had initially stopped Abraham from slaying Isaac, he had commended him. Remember, we saw this last week by saying, now I know. 
that thou fearest God. That was a commendation. That was part of the blessing. He, he, uh, he passed that fiery test, and he got God's A++++. Now in verses 16 and 18 in today's lesson, we see two more praises from the Lord. In verse uh, 16, he said that thou hast done this thing. In other words, you know, you're going to be rewarded because you have obeyed. You have done this thing that I have asked of you. And over in verse 18, we see the Lord say, thou hast obeyed my voice. Also, Abraham's obedience helped to increase his own knowledge of God. And whenever we increase in our knowledge and in our understanding of God, is that not a blessing? Of course it is. It's a great blessing in our life. That's what this Bible study is all about, so that we can increase in our knowledge of God. And as we do that, we are blessed in our lives. Had he not been obedient then Abraham may have missed out on knowing God as Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, the provider God who would one day, as we just heard in that song, would one day provide himself the lamb to be the sin substitute for the world. Well, additional blessings, uh, which came to Abraham as a result of his obedience to God's will in sacrificing Isaac, um, are found... In the further confirmation of the covenant promises which Abraham had already received at earlier times in his life. You know, the covenant promises to Abraham weren't given all in one chunk. He was given a few of them back in chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Then a few more were added in chapter 13. Then we had a few more in chapter 15 and a few more in chapter 17. Well, this is sort of, uh, even though he's already received most of these covenant promises already, it had to have been for Abraham at this time, now in chapter 22, an additional blessing for him to hear God's reassurance that he would keep all these covenant promises. He even throws in a little bit more when he talks about the, um, the gates there at the end of verse 17, possess the gate of his enemies. That's something we've never heard before. So in verse 16, um, no, excuse me. So Abraham's obedience also helped to increase um, not only his knowledge of God, but it also gave him reassurance about the covenant promises. Then in verse 16, what does God do, or the Lord? He swears by his own name. It says, and, and said, the Lord said, by myself have I sworn, saith the Lord. He swore by his own name. In order to emphasize as just as powerfully as he could that his promises to Abraham would be accomplished. Now the Lord had never before previously confirmed a covenant promise in such a powerful manner. You know, by swearing by his own name that he would do this. So this was an additional blessing. It was like the Lord of heaven saying... I will do this. I stake my own name on the fact that I will keep my promises to you. Over in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 13, we are actually told about this event that took place right here in Genesis 22:16, where God swears by himself. In Hebrews 6:13, the scripture says, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater. Is there anyone greater than God to swear by? <laughs> no. So if you're God, you know, you can't swear by God that you will do this. So he had to swear by himself. And that's exactly what it tells us. For when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. Actually, 
the significance of this oath that God made to him, uh, by himself to Abraham is so important that it's mentioned ten times in the Bible. Not just here, but ten more times we are told about when God swore by himself to Abraham. So that tells us right there that this was pretty significant. This gave Abraham all, you know, the blessed assurance that he needed regarding the future um, promises to him. And it is a blessing. How many of you can vouch for the fact that it is indeed a blessing to have assurance regarding God's promises? A lot of people deal with assurance problems. Am I saved or am I not saved? To know that you know that you know that you truly are saved, that's blessed assurance. We all should have it because we should trust God's word. I mean, it's true that if God says something once, we can bank on it. It's true and it's sure. But he understands our frail natures. He understands because he made us and then he watched us sin. So he understands that because of our human nature, we need to constantly be reassured about things. I mean, how many wives like to hear their husband Say, I love you, I love you, I love you over and over again. And vice versa. The husband needs it too. We just need reassurance. So one great blessing which came as a result of Abraham's obedience was the wonderful reassurance from the Lord regarding some of his earlier covenant promises, which we will look at in a little more detail in verses 17 and 18. The first reassurance that the Lord promised Abraham after swearing by himself to do so was that in blessing he would bless him. You see that? That's in verse 17. That in blessing I will bless thee. Now that sounds a little bit strange, doesn't it? What does that mean? Well, it simply means that God would abundantly bless Abraham. For years, Abraham had already been receiving the blessing of God, right? He had been. Everywhere he had gone, God had seen to it that Abraham prospered. Even when he messed up, you know, when he went down into Egypt and lied about his relationship with Sarah, and then later on when he slept with Hagar and had Ishmael, and then later on when he went down into Gerar and again lied about his relationship with Sarah. And messed, even when he messed things up, what did God do? God intervened in order to straighten things out so that still Abraham came out of those circumstances blessed. I mean, he was even, even his enemies lavished gifts on him. That didn't seem right, but God blessed him. And, uh, and even one of his enemies became his friend, Abimelech, and he noticed that God was with Abraham in all that he did. And then God had earlier, remember back in Genesis chapter 12, that God, when God had promised to bless those who blessed him and curse those who cursed him. That was the initial blessing. Is that blessing still going on today? Is it still valid today? Yes, that's why we need as a country and as a, uh, the body of Christ, we need to keep on Israel's side because God will bless us if we do. You know, Israel, uh, that, those are the descendants of Abraham. And then didn't Melchizedek, you know, that very mysterious king priest of the Most High God, had he not blessed Abraham? Yes. And had God not blessed Sarah, Abraham's wife, yes, we see that in chapter 17, verse 15. And he had even blessed Ishmael, chapter 17, verse 20. And of course, he also blessed Isaac, the son of promise, in whom the covenant blessings would continue. And now, in chapter 22, verse 17, the Lord was saying that in all of those blessings, God would bless him even further. 
It was a promise for additional, abundant blessings, enhanced blessings for not only the rest of Abraham's life, but also on into his eternal life. You know, actually, most of Abraham's blessings came to him when? In this life? No. Most of his blessings came to him when he was in heaven. And they still continue to come to him. Because every time somebody is saved, that's a blessing through Abraham. Because it was through him that the Savior came. And this will probably be the case for most of us as well. Our greatest blessings and our greatest rewards are not here in this life. I mean, you might get a pat on the back every now and then. But most of our awards and most of our rewards, most of our blessings, await us in heaven. And they will far, far exceed any blessings that we receive in this life. So if we are diligent in our obedience to God, we will never encounter any disappointment in the blessings that we will eventually receive. You know, when I say blessings follow obedience, you might say, well, I haven't had a whole lot of blessings lately. Or for a long time. Just wait. Just wait. You keep on keeping on. And one day in heaven, if you are obedient and diligent and faithful to the Lord, you will receive far more in proportion to what you gave in this life. Well, the second reassurance given to the Lord, given by the Lord to Abraham with regard to the former covenant promises was that in multiplying... He would multiply his seed as what? As the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. That's where we got the title for the message, Stars and Sand. God here was reassuring Abraham of the promise of innumerable, uncountable descendants, which he had promised to him already. Do you remember this promise? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? He'd already promised him this on two earlier occasions. In Genesis 13, verse 16, God had told Abraham, and this is when Abraham was still childless, hadn't even had Ishmael. God had told Abraham that he would make his seed as the dust of the earth, speaking of dust particles. I mean, just my house alone would be a vast multitude. <laughs> and then in Genesis 15, 5, again, while Abraham was still totally childless, God had promised uh, that his seed would be as the number of stars in the heavens. Now, it's very interesting to realize that God compared Abraham's seed to the dust of the earth, the stars of heaven, and now for the first time here in Genesis 22:17, to the grains of sand on the earth's seashores. We haven't heard this one. This is a new one. We've had dust particles and stars, but we've never heard about this, the grains of sand on the earth's seashores. And it's interesting that he does this uh, because this once again shows us that this is a God-inspired book. Man could not have written this way back in the days of Moses and known this. God alone would have known this. That you can compare dust particles, stars of the heavens, and grains of sand and have them comparable. Why do I say that? Because for years, for many, many years, the Bible was criticized as being, un uh, being scientifically inaccurate in comparing the seashore's grains of sand 
and the dust particles with the stars of heaven. Why is that? Well, because until they invented the telescope, men only thought that there was about 3,000 stars in the sky. They could look up and they could count them. And they come, came up with the naked eye. They could count about 3,000 stars. And yet, even without counting, anyone knew that even a bucket of sand would contain more, or a bucket of dust. How, I don't know how you would collect a bucket of dust, but I guess you could do that at my house. <laughs> but they knew, even without counting, that a bucket of sand was easy contain more than 3,000 individual grains. In fact, there are approximately, now this is really important for you to remember this, there are approximately 10 million grains of sand in a single cubit foot of sand. Tuck that away into those little uh, crevices of your brains. <laughs> so for thousands of years, men scoffed at the Bible for making such a ridiculous, unscientific comparison. But then what happened? Men invented the telescope. And all of a sudden, ha, the skies just burst open with millions and millions and millions and millions and billions of stars. They estimate, and that's all it can be, that even in the observable universe, which is just probably the hem of the garment, even in the observable um, heavens, the stars number 10 with 25 zeros after it. And I don't know what you call that, except 10 to the 25th power. And uh, they've done it, uh, some scientists have nothing better to do, so they've done this little estimate on how many grains of sand are on the Earth's seashore, and they came out with 10 with 25 zeros after it. So who would know that but the Creator, God? And so that's why I say, again, we have proof that this is indeed a God-inspired book. So now it is understood to be an excellent comparison along with dust particles, to convey the idea to Abraham that his descendants would be positively uncountable. That's what the whole message is saying. Not that there would be 10 to the 25th power of saved people from Abraham, but that the number would be uncountable. No one would be able to count the number that would be saved from because of Abraham and from him coming the Savior. Not that Abraham saved anybody, but that the Savior came from him that um, no one would be able to count it except the Lord. Now, we also learn from God's promises to Abraham that it is impossible to outgive God. Abraham had been willing to sacrifice his only son. And God not only gave him back Isaac, right? But he continued to bless Abraham with an additional number of sons, so much so... And I'm not just talking about the literal sons that came from his second wife, Keturah, but the sons and daughters that eventually came to him, not only uh, through the nation of Israel, but those that were grafted on to Abraham, like you and I, who are um, spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham. So that number, he was willing to give up his one and only son, and what has he gotten in return? A, a number that's innumerable. That he can't even count. Only God will know what the final number will be. So you and I, what's the message for us? We don't ever, ever have to be afraid to give up things for God. So many people are so afraid to give what they have to the Lord. You cannot ever. 
never outgive the Lord. Now, don't give just so that you get. You know, there's this false philosophy out there that you give so that you'll receive back. But just give as a cheerful giver, and you'll find out that you can't ever outgive him. Give him your time. I mean, I have seen how he'll do that. If I give him my time, somehow or another, it's almost like he magically stretches my time. And I get everything done that I need to get done, even though I didn't think that was possible. Give him your time. Give him your money. Give him your your possessions, uh, your house. Dedicate your house to the Lord, your popularity, your, your children, your careers, your jobs, your friends. Nothing that he asks us to give to him is too much to give. And he has a way of blessing us in ways much, much more abundant than what we do give to him. And that's what Abraham learned. Now, the third promise of blessing to Abraham, given in verse 17, was a new one. This is new. We haven't heard this before. The Lord said to Abraham, Thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Now, possession of the gate of a city was a term which meant uh, domination. Those who possessed a city's gate were the ones who ruled the city. So Abraham's descendants would one day possess the gates of their enemies. And although there have been times in Israel's history when this was true, they were always times when Israel obeyed God. When she obeyed him, then she had possession of her land. What happened when she failed in her obedience to the Lord? Then she grew weak, and others came and took possession of her, the gates of her cities. Ultimately, really, this part of the covenant promise uh, will not be really totally fulfilled until the millennial kingdom, when Christ comes and rules the earth from where? From Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. This is when this part of the covenant promise will ultimately be fulfilled. Notice, after all, it says, Thy seed, singular, shall possess the gate of his enemies. So really, ultimately, this is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ when he reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords literally over this world. And notice, as I just mentioned, notice that the word seed is mentioned by the angel of the Lord, the angel of Jehovah, three times in his statement of blessings to Abraham. Just in verses 17 and 18, we find the word seed three times. When these words were spoken, Abraham had only one seed in God's eyes, and who was that? That was Isaac. Because Ishmael, you know, in God's eyes, he was the son of the bondwoman. He didn't count in God's eyes as Abraham's seed. And that one seed, according to God's own promises, um, was to multiply so greatly that Abraham would end up with as many seeds as stars in the heavens, grains of sand on the seashores, and dust particles. Yet the plural word for seeds is not used. Look at verses 17 and 18. It's it's not used. Three times we just see the singular word seed. And this is very significant because of the fact that it would be through Abraham uh, that the singular seed with a capital S, the Savior, would come. 
the Apostle Paul over in the book of Galatians, we've looked at this before, but I'll just remind you. <clears throat> he tells us why the singular word for seed of Abraham is used here in Genesis. He says this, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed. And now here Paul tells us, which is Christ. So in this covenant promise, when you read the word seed, Paul tells us he is really, the Lord is really speaking about himself. <laughs> this is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ speaking about himself. And we've already seen this in the fact that thy seed will possess the gate of his enemies. Well, that's in Galatians 3.16. If you go forward eight verses in Galatians 3.8, Paul, so Paul also stated that when God had told Abraham that in him, this we see in um, verse 18, also over in Genesis 12.3, when God had told Abraham that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, Paul tells us, in Galatians, that the Lord was actually preaching the gospel message to Abraham. Remember last week we said, how much did Abraham understand? He understood quite a bit. He got preached the gospel message that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. See, it was through Abraham and through the nation which was born from him that the Lord Jesus would come to the earth. And because his death made a way, the only way for salvation, the world's nations would be blessed. In other words, the promised blessing which was spoken to Abraham after he had obeyed the voice of God spoke of the coming salvation of a vast multitude of people, of which you and I, I hope, are part. I hope everyone in this room is saved. I hope you have been born again by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death there on Calvary. And if you haven't, please, this would be a great time of year to settle that, wouldn't it? The Christmas season. So come see me or one of your leaders. Let's just settle that today. If you even have, as we talked about before, if you even have any assurance problems, let's settle that today. In Genesis 22:18, uh, we find the word obeyed for the very first time in the scripture. And it really is significant that we find the word obeyed in reference to obedience uh, to God's words, God's voice. Notice it says, um, because thou hast obeyed what? My voice. So the first time the word obeyed is used is in obedience to God's word. That's very significant. It's also significant that the first time the word obeyed appears in the scripture is in reference to the greatest of blessings. The greatest of blessings. Christ's salvation of multitudes from all nations. So that's very significant to notice. You can tell people a lot of things. Can't you ask your kids and your grandchildren lots of little trivial questions like when does the first time worship appear in the Bible? When does the first time obedience? And we're learning all kinds of firsts. This is, after all, the book of beginnings. Remember Genesis, the book of beginnings. Okay, let's turn now to verse 19. And this is a look at Abraham's return to Beersheba. 
It says, verse 19, So Abraham returned unto his young men, remember those are the two servants waiting, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. This verse tells us that after returning down to those uh, two young men, those two servants, who were waiting at the foot of Mount Moriah, probably with the donkey and all their supplies, then we're told that Abraham went to Beersheba, and he lived there. Beersheba, remember, had been the place where many years earlier he had met with Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, and he had formed a peace covenant with him. It was also the place where Abraham had dug a well, which had been violently taken from him by some of Abimelech's servants. And that issue had been resolved before Abraham agreed to make his peace pact with Abimelech. All that was in chapter 21, just one chapter earlier. Beersheba had also been the place where Abraham had planted a grove of tamarisk trees right near the well. And then where he had worshipped the Lord for the first time by the name El Olam. And that name means what? Right, the everlasting God, the eternal God. Um, I had mentioned when we studied that that it was a shame that there was not, that I didn't know of a song that had ever been written singing about El Olam. And I said, well, I know about a song that says Adonai, and there's another one, El Shaddai, and probably Jehovah's in song. But I never had heard one with uh, El Olam. So uh, we're going to have a special treat after our lesson. Where is Debbie? I don't see her. Oh, you're right in front of me. I never look at the person in front of me. <laughs> so Debbie here in the front row went home that week when I said that. And a, she's a very gifted musician, and she wrote a song. Entitled El Olam? What's the title? I don't even know. It is entitled El Olam. And so when we finish this lesson, we're going to hear that song sung by Debbie and Terry. So don't, I hope you don't have to leave early. That will be a treat. Anyway, so you need to write another one on Jehovah Jireh. <laughs> I forgot to tell you that. <laughs> Probably already is. <laughs> and for whatever reason, anyway, Abraham now, when he uh, left Mount Moriah, which, you know, is up... Near, it, it was Jerusalem, that area. He now decided to travel back south, except instead of going back to live in the land of the Philistines in Gerar, now he settled in Beersheba. And I don't really know the reason there, except maybe he had planted those tamarisk trees some 30 years earlier, and, and now maybe he decided to go there and enjoy the shade from those trees and the well that he had dug there. Um, but we know that he didn't live there for many years. Because in the next chapter, verse 1, we find Sarah dies, and they're living in Hebron. So they're back up where they had been earlier at the time when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So we see that Abraham never settled for real long in any one particular place. All the way up to the time of his death, he really was still a nomad living in the land of Canaan, not making any one place his permanent, permanent home. Now, what is most interesting about Genesis 22:19? You might not even pick up on this unless you really look hard and think hard, but what's most interesting is the absence of whose name? 
sixth name. Now, although we know that as Abraham had promised earlier, those two servants, you know, who stayed behind with the donkey, we know this was a monumental statement of faith that he had promised them that both he and Isaac would return unto them. And that was a statement of faith because he actually believed that after he killed Isaac, God would raise him from the dead. And we know that they did both return to those two young men. And yet, what does the verse literally say? It says, so Abraham returned unto his young men. So why was there a deliberate omission of Isaac's name? Why doesn't it say they returned or Abraham and Isaac returned? Why does it just say, so Abraham returned unto his young men? Well, the answer to that is extremely interesting. Other than the life of Joseph, which one of these years we'll get to, <laughs> uh, and he, of course, was one of the grandsons of Isaac. But other than the life of Joseph, the life of Isaac of all the other human figures in all of Scripture, most beautifully foreshadows the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've already seen that in a number of ways. Uh, we've already learned how he was brought into this world by a supernatural conception. He was the only begotten son of his father. He was offered up as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah, the very place of the temple and Calvary, and he figuratively rose from the dead on the third day. And along with the assistance which he received from the ram provided there in the thickets, Isaac was almost a perfect picture in prophetic type of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel message. And this picture continues. It doesn't just end with Mount Moriah. And that continuation is what we find in Genesis 22:19. According to the actual statement of verse 19, it sounds like it sounds like it isn't really, but it sounds like and remember every word of scripture is God inspired. So it sounds like only Abraham came down from the mountain. It sounds like Isaac remained where? Up on the top of the mountain. Now, of course, we know this wasn't true. We know this wasn't the case. However, for the sake of the prophetic picture of Isaac as a type of the Lord Jesus, no mention is purposely, by the Holy Spirit inspiring Moses, no mention is purposely made of Isaac coming down that mountain. In fact, there are no more appearances of Isaac until we get to Genesis chapter 24, where we again see him as he reappears on the scene to go out and meet his bride. So as far as the Bible presents the case in literal words, Isaac is not viewed again until after his resurrection when he appears to meet his bride. Now, what is that a perfect picture of? Where is the Lord Jesus right now? He's up on the mountain. He's up in heaven. And he won't appear until when? When he appears to meet his bride, the time of the rapture. So his name is conspicuously absent 
in the remainder of Genesis chapter 22 and also all of Genesis chapter 23. And in 24, until we don't really, we read his name, but we don't really see him on the scene again until he goes out to meet Rebecca, his bride. I think that's beautiful. Perhaps nowhere in all of the Bible do we have a more complete prophetic picture of the Lord Jesus, except for the life of Joseph, than we have here in the remarkable picture of Isaac. And also, nowhere in all the Bible, I think I can safely say this, do we have a more complete and a more remarkable, wonderful picture of the calling out of the church, the bride, for the Lord Jesus Christ than we find in prophetic type in Genesis chapter 24. Please make sure you come back in January because this will be so exciting when we get to this. Abraham's servant, Eliezer, whose name means God's helper or God's guide. And who is God's helper with a capital H or God's guide? The Holy Spirit. Abraham's servant, Eliezer, Pictures the Holy Spirit. Eliezer is sent by Abraham, who pictures the Lord of God. He is sent into a far country to bring back a bride for Abraham's son. Rebecca, who providentially responds correctly to Eliezer, do we have to respond correctly to the wooing of the Holy Spirit? Yes. She is therefore providentially chosen to be the bride for Isaac. And she serves as a beautiful picture of the church. Because the Lord Jesus, represented by Isaac, is absent from the earth during the time when the Holy Spirit is calling out all those believers who together make up the bride, the true church of Christ, Isaac is purposely not mentioned from the time of his resurrection to the time when he actually comes forth to meet his bride. And again, I hope you're getting all this because it is absolutely fantastic. And if you ever have doubts about God's word being God's word, remember to remind yourself of things like this. No man could ever have known all this. Not even Moses. <laughs> all right, let's look at Abraham's relations through his brother, verses 20 to 24. And I might stumble over some of these names, but... And it says, And it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah, she hath also borne children unto thy brother Nahor. Now listen to these first two boys. <laughs> Huz, his firstborn, and Buzz, his brother. <laughs> I uh, yet await. Well, you want to write a song on that one? Huz and Buzz. <laughs> At least it would rhyme. Huz is firstborn, and Buzz his brother, <laughs> and Kemuel the father of Aaron, and Kesed, and Hazo, and Pildash, and Jitloth, and Bethuel. And Bethuel begat, oh, here's one I can pronounce, Rebekah. These eight Milcah did bear to Nahor, Abraham's brother. And his concubine, whose name was Reumah, she bare also Teba and Gaham and Thahash and Maacah. Well, having discussed the future bride for Isaac, Rebekah, 
the sudden appearance of Abraham's relatives through his only remaining brother, Nahor, makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? We've just been talking about her, and now here is a genealogical record which includes her. Initially, it might have seemed irrelevant for this family tree of Nahor, of whom we haven't heard Uh, Since Genesis chapter 11, we haven't heard about Nahor. But initially it might have looked kind of strange for all of a sudden his family tree to appear in the scripture right after the great victory of Abraham up there on Mount Moriah and right before the mention of Sarah's death. Otherwise, you'd probably scratch your head and say, well, why is this genealogy of Nahor here in the middle? However, you see, understanding the importance of God's covenant promises being fulfilled through Isaac makes this sort of parenthetical roll call of names very significant, very vital. You see, Abraham, I mean, um, Isaac could not become the father of the great nation of Israel, nor could he carry on the messianic line if he remained single, right? And had no children. This guy needed to get married. Especially if he's about 33 years of age. He's right. So Abraham had probably been wondering. He's past right? (laughs) Maybe nowadays, but in his day, that was fine. Abraham, hey, my husband was 32 when he married me. Keep this girl quiet over here. Abraham had probably been wondering for maybe several years where he would be able to find a wife for Isaac. There was apparently no one among his Philistine neighbors and no woman among the Amorites or the Hittites who would do. Not for Isaac, of course. So he probably was longing for Isaac to have a wife from his own people. And so... uh, You know, he had a son named, I mean, a brother named Haran. But remember Haran? This is Abraham. There there were three brothers in Abraham's family. Abraham, Haran, and Nahor. Well, Haran had died before they even left Ur of the Chaldees. And Haran had, right, he had Lot. So if Abraham was thinking about, well, maybe Isaac could marry one of Lot's children, what would the answer to that be? No, 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 no. (laughs) That would not do at all because his daughters had incest with their father. And then all we know about is them each having one son. So that side of the family tree was negative. So now he's thinking, well, what about my other brother, Nahor? So apparently, you know, he got word through a passing caravan or maybe he sent one of his servants, maybe even sent Eliezer, I don't know. But he sent word to get a, uh, a record of what was going on in Nahor's family. And we find out he got word back somehow or another that Nahor, his other brother, had married his niece. Well, he actually had known this before they left Ur, that he married his niece. In other words, Nahor married Haran's daughter. Now, there was no law against this back in the old days. You know, this wasn't considered too close for comfort. You know, Abraham married his half-sister, so this was fine because the gene pool was still pure, and God didn't have any problem with it. So anyway, he had married his niece, Milcah, who was Lot's sister. All right? You getting all this? Lot had a sister named Milcah. She married her uncle, Nahor. Anyway, and... um, 
So we get the, uh, the report here now that Nahor, through Milcah, his wife, had eight sons. And I won't repeat their names, but they start with Huz and Buzz and go from there. And then Nahor had a concubine, naughty man, and her name was Rehuma, and she gave him four additional sons. This would probably be kind of sad for Abraham. You know, poor guy, he only had one son, and he gets a report back that his brother has 12 but do you think Abraham had a problem with it? No, Abraham didn't have a problem with it. Anyway, um, so there were, at least, and there were probably daughters also who were born to Nahor and Milcah and Reumah and Nahor, but they're not mentioned in here. And furthermore, with at least 12 sons, we know that there would have been many grandchildren, that Nahor would have had many grandchildren, and yet only two of his grandchildren are mentioned. One of them is Aram, the son of Kemuel, and, the, and I don't know why he's mentioned. I don't know, but there must be a reason. And the other grandchild, which is mentioned, is Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel. Now, Be- Rebekah is the only female mentioned in all of Nahor's descendants, you know, his two well, his wife and his concubine, I can't say his two wives, but his wife and his concubine are mentioned. But as far as his descendants, Rebecca is the only female mentioned. And the reason for this is because, as you know, she was the young woman God had sovereignly chosen for Isaac. Because Isaac had been born to Abraham and Sarah very late in their life, you know, she, Sarah was 90, Abraham was 100. Therefore, Isaac is the same age as his uncle's grandchildren, you know, rather than his uncle's children. He's not the same age as Huz and Buzz. Huz and Buzz are much older than Isaac. He's the same age, roughly, as Rebecca. So really, Rebecca is Isaac's not first cousin, but second cousin. So we're getting a little more comfortable with the situation, aren't we? So as we conclude... Can you believe I'm I'm finished? It's a short lesson. As we can conclude, as we conclude with this great chapter, don't ever forget Genesis chapter 22. It's a fantastic chapter. We find that a shift from the biblical focus on Abraham is beginning to take place. And now the focus is beginning to go over to who? Isaac. So very shortly, we're going to be finished with the life of Abraham, and we're going to start shifting over to the life of Isaac. The genealogy mentioned in these final five verses was included so as to introduce Isaac's future wife into the story. So how beautiful it really is. Don't miss this while you're closing up your Bibles. It's really beautiful that we end this great chapter with a look at Rebecca. You know, this chapter has given us such a clear vision of Calvary and of the redemptive work of Christ which took place there on Calvary that it is very, very fitting that this chapter, this, you know, remember Mariah means clear vision, that this chapter finishes with our focus on Rebecca, because the first fruit of Calvary was what? The church. The church consists of those of us, like Rebecca, who were not in the direct line of promise at all. 
We were not the sons and the daughters of Abraham, but by God's grace, we were brought into Abraham's family by way of our marriage to his beloved son. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Well, at this time, we are going